podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. So tell me, like, who was the um, earliest person in your life who seemed to be doing life well? Ooh, I definitely felt like my parents did life well. But I do remember the first time they told me something and I later found out that wasn't right. Not like, you know, kids are told that Father Christmas exists and that kind of thing. Not like that, but like when they told me something sort of... Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> he definitely does exist, it's fine. <laughs> um, but when the, the first time I had like an argument with my, not an argument, but you know, like a discussion, a debate with my dad about something and I realised that I didn't necessarily agree with him. I, we don't have yeah. similar kind of politics about yeah. stuff. Um, that was quite a weird moment because you think your parents, or certainly if you've had a good childhood like I did then you think your parents know everything and you really trust everything that they say and you think that they are kind of the arbiters of your like morals and truth and then when you get a bit older and you meet other people with different outlooks you realize oh actually there's more there's more outlooks than just theirs and obviously that's really healthy it's good like we don't all want to be the same and it doesn't matter that I don't agree with my parents about some things and I I do agree with them about lots of other things but Yeah, in terms of who was, like, doing life well, there were some teachers I remember who I really felt I want to be like that when I'm older. Oh, yeah. Who who was that? Mr. Tag was the first one. He was a good teacher. He was in year six, Was that, like, a Nordic name? Oh, I don't know. He lived in Swindon. Well, he's from Swindon. (laughs) He didn't live in Swindon. But, so, because we grew up in near High Wycombe, supported Wycombe Wanderers Football Club. He supported Swindon Town FC. So there was immediately that kind of rivalry and um in fact (laughs) we had to write a we had to do a modern day version of Romeo and Juliet so we made it about rival football fans the the Wickham fans versus the Swindon fans it was really good yeah it it was one of three that were picked to then actually perform in front of I can't remember the rest of the year or the rest of the school yeah um that's really accessible yeah it was it was really fun so me and my friend Joe wrote it together um but because we used to go to the football together and um but we were really unsubtle with what our characters were called (laughs) like blatantly being named after teachers and that and (laughs) yeah I mean they obviously we thought we were being oh so clever but I'm sure they were just like oh for goodness sake (laughs) did you ever tell them that you like admired or did you ever tell Mr Tag how you felt do you think yeah, he he did he was happy with his life? Oh, that's a really good question. He married one of the other teachers and they seemed very happy. Mm. Um, and oh, I guess though when you're 11, I don't think you can really necessarily kind of understand whether an adult is happy or not. You're probably separated from, well, and you should be separated from your teacher's <laughs> lives. To be honest, it would be weird if you weren't. <laughs> Susie, I've had such a weekend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so was that, you admired him, I guess, for, he seemed kind of, cool and calm with everything he seemed to react well to the world exactly that's a really good way of putting it he was really great teacher for a start he treated you like people rather than students if that makes sense not that the other teachers weren't like we had lots of great teachers but he was the first one where I really felt like we joked like you could you could tease him and he could tease you and it wouldn't be awkward or upsetting or weird it would be fun and funny and make you think about things and yeah. kind of challenge you a bit but in yeah. a like in a constructive way sounds like he shared out power almost because there's that relationship sometimes where you can't take the pee out of a teacher because ah you've broken then, the, yeah. the chain but I, I i had a teacher like that who kind of gave out the power to the kids 
and we didn't abuse it. We just loved him for it. Yeah. Like, he's treating us well. Yeah, and I think it's a very delicate balance because I also had teachers where they didn't have the power and that was a really bad thing. And they knew it. Um, well, yeah, yeah that they, they didn't have the power, not because they'd chosen to give it out, but because <laughs> it had been taken from them. Yeah, you know? yeah never yeah. elected. Exactly. That's interesting. I think you've p- picked up something really interesting about the um, family thing. I had that feeling, which was, um, I said to my dad something about long multiplication. And he was like, oh, you do it like that. And I went, so is that the same for division? And he went, yeah. It was like a Homer moment. Of, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I, and I, when I realised it was wrong, like a week later or something, I was like, oh, this is embarrassing. And I never pulled him up on it. Yeah. Because it was too much to face, you know, the failure of a totem of, you know, yeah. authority. yeah. And, like, that's a good realisation to have. Like, we should never go on in life thinking that people are infallible because that's dangerous. But but it is a weird moment when you just have that realisation because they do teach, like, parents teach you so much, not only about sort of, like, learning kind of what you think of as classic teaching, but also about life, outlook, morals, all of this kind of thing. The the people that you're around the most in the earliest part of your life where you're kind of forming those initial views about the world are your parents so yeah. god it's a big responsibility isn't it is there any i don't have kids is there any course for like um parents to go on for like looking after your 11 to 16 year old in those years where they start to yeah but it's even i mean it's even younger than that like oh, yeah. i think yeah. Oh, yeah i mean i don't have kids either but um i've just come from my sister's house and um, with her toddler and it's really interesting every time i see him sort of a few weeks or months at a time have passed and how he's his personality is developing like in real time it's yeah. it's amazing to see he's the first he's the first sort of child i've been around a lot kind of in that time apart from my sister when I was two and she was zero which doesn't really count I don't think yeah but um yeah it's incredible and (laughs) and my sister and her husband are are so amazing in terms of their parenting like it's inspiring or inspiring to watch how because there is no instruction manual that's kind of it I mean well having said that there are a million books you can buy about it but there's no like there's no definitive way if you do X, Y, Z, then your child will. Totally. Because everyone is different. Children are all different. You know, yeah. environment is different. I'm, I mean, that's kind of what I do in my research is I'm yeah. interested in the impact of genetics and environment Absolutely. and what we choose to do and how that all impacts on, on us as people. Yeah. And everyone navigates the world differently. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. I, and I endlessly, you know, fall in love. Like we've got these a uh, couple of people who work with me they're from literally opposite ends of the kind of socioeconomic spectrum and they both have exactly the same levels of accountability, um, honesty and, you know, it's, it's so easy to think, oh, if you come from that type of background, those types of parents, you're going to end up like this. Yeah. And then it's, it's all very, very much a positive thing and, you know, I'm endlessly interested in, in how people decide who they want to be in the world, you know, yeah. and, and their views of the world and um, what was that for you then growing up? Did you... Um, how did you get to be the, you know, the person who questions what you question now? Was there something that set you off? So I get asked, like, why did you become a scientist quite a lot? Which is sort of the same question and sort of slightly different, I guess. But um, I was always really curious about things. Um, I remember writing to Jimmy Savile, oh. <laughs> asking, asking if I could, I wanted to go and learn how neon lights work. 
Ah. And there was partly a little bit of savviness in that because I knew I noticed when watching Jim Will Fix It that if you got to go on the show and learn about something, quite often they would give you something at the end. And I thought like a little neon light that said Susie for my bedroom would be very cool. That would still be cool. <laughs> so cynical, <laughs> even as a child. But um, I think that's a wonderful yeah. thing. I mean, thankfully, looking back on it, I didn't get response. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was, gen- I was always sort of curious about things I didn't necessarily think I wanted to be a scientist at that point but I did like taking things apart and putting things together and kind of like I liked patterns and I liked all of this kind of thing and and I think that's quite a lot of where I came from um last a couple of weeks ago I met Helen Sharman uh, who was the first British person in space and she went up to space when I was a child and I really remember that happening and not necessarily putting it together in my head like I have now that like look at that that's a woman doing something so incredible that no one in Britain has ever done before and it just goes to show that you can be anything that you want to be but I'm sure there was a bit of that there um I had such a supportive childhood that I really felt any option was open to me I mean actually probably not astronaut um given that I was once seasick in a pedalo but um other than that forget the pedalo incident we'll still go ahead with the test (laughs) I don't think I'm going to do it. I did actually tell that to Helen Sharman when I met her. <laughs> and, and, and she laughed. And then the look on her face, I was like, oh, God. There's more to it than An embarrass- <laughs> just pedalling, right? <laughs> An astronaut just gave me a look like, oh, my God, you're an idiot. Yeah. And she was right. <laughs> but I think everyone must bring someone like that, their personal experience. When you meet someone who's achieved that type of thing, you've got to bring your personal relationship to that. You've got to yeah, share. Exactly. You have to. And she was incredibly this was um at Cheltenham Science Festival and we were just sitting in the um in the green room because I was doing an event as well and she was so generous there were so many people who obviously like wanted to share yeah. space with well, not space yeah. but yeah, yeah, <laughs> share yeah ground literally. with her <laughs> but um and she was just yeah she's such an amazing lovely person and, yeah do you think people can be anything they want to be I think people have the have potential to be almost anything and I think there are kind of structural things that make that harder for some people. I'd love to live in a world where everyone could be anything that they want to be, but I don't think that's this world yet. I think there are lots of people trying to push towards it, but I don't think we're there. Yeah, so I guess probably no is the, an- is the simple answer to that question. I wish the answer was yes. Do you think the, in the endeavour to struggle to do what you want to do, there's the same level of reward as actually achieving it? Again, I think it probably depends on what you're doing, but... Sometimes the struggle is actually better than achieving it because <laughs> once you've done it, where do you go? And I think that like I know a lot of musicians and I think that's kind of a thing that when you've done when you achieve something great, like the next album or the next tour, it's really hard because you're like, Oh, it's not gonna be as good as that in all likelihood. So yeah, that I think that's that's interesting. That's also something else as well. That's somebody else's recognition of what it is. In like a scientific field, if you if you prove a popular theory and no one can disprove it, it then reigns supreme until someone does, right? Yeah, although I guess to me that's kind of less important. Um, the importance is kind of moving forward and like it's good. Adoption. When, it's good when stuff gets um, disproved because it means we're getting better at understanding. Things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that's more of a binary thing. We can all kind of agree 
ah, look, no one's managed to disprove it, so this person has succeeded. Whereas Oasis' third album, I I kind of liked, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone else hates it. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little, that's like an artistic, you know, opinion. Yeah. And it's also Although weirdly science is less clear cut than you might think in that regard. So I work in the field of e-cigarette research, and that's a field where there's actually not that much evidence yet. And so people take the same people like scientists are not um infallible either. They all bring their own preconceptions and beliefs onto the scientific literature. And science has lots of ways to try and kind of minimize that bias but it's still there it's some types of research particularly the types of research that i do looking into illicit drugs and recreational drugs they're really difficult to do to design really well really good studies because you can't randomize a group of teenagers to like half of them use cannabis and half of them not for lots of reasons ethical (laughs) and practical um so you just have to watch what people choose to do and the people who choose to use cannabis are different from the people who don't in lots of other ways. And so when you see the link between cannabis and psychosis, for example, it's really difficult to then know what that means. Does that mean that cannabis causes psychosis? Or does that mean that people with psychosis are more likely to use cannabis? Or does that mean that people with difficult childhoods are more likely to do both? And the link you see is just a coincidence because of that. Totally. And so depending on what your preconceptions are, you can look at the scientific evidence and read it in those three different ways, and then you can say... But there's a leap being made there, isn't there? There's a leap of assessment and judgment at some point being made, because you clearly pointed out the three different ways you can interpret that yeah. information. Well, the other one is it's just chance as well. So, or you haven't designed your experiment very well. There's it's actually, not big enough, yeah. or it's, yeah, it's already skewed by a bias you embedded at the beginning exactly, of the process. Exactly, yeah. So... In a way, it is more subjective than yeah. it should be, particularly... I thought you all got on. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no. Not. That's really interesting. I, I didn't actually give it that, because I, I like the purity, uh, you know, I observe of the scientific process. Yeah. Well, I think the further away you get from people, the better it yeah. is, the more you can actually have, like, in math, you can actually have proofs. Yeah. Whereas in science, you can only have kind of strength of evidence. Yeah. And obviously, the, the, the psychologists are a bit more... It's a bit more grey areas than the biologists and the biologists. It's a bit more grey areas than the chemists and the chemists. It's a bit more grey areas than the physicists. And then you get to maths where it's like, yes, we can actually prove things. That's right. And then it's like, that's quite hard to disprove. Whereas when you get right down the other end of psychology, it's really... Because people also, when you try and do experiments with people... Yeah. They bring themselves, and that's not what you want at all. They're going, oh, I wonder if the experiment is trying to do this, so I'll just fill this in. Yeah. And you're like, no, <laughs> I'll, help you out. I'll help you out there. <laughs> I think I heard that on the Infinite Monkey Cage once, that um, someone said to Brian something like, particle physics, that's for the easy boys. Like, I do biology, yeah. and that's where it really gets difficult. Yeah, I bet know. that was Adam Rutherford who said that. Oh, really? That would be my guess. He's, say, he's always saying that. I yeah. mean, he's, I agree. But, yeah. <laughs> So this started out as a curiosity of, you know, experimenting patterns. Do you, just going back, because I'm always interested in to what toys people played with when they were younger. Mm-hmm. What were your favourite kind of toys? So I always wanted Lego, but mm. I never had any. Never got it. No, I mean, I had like Duplo and that kind of thing, but we never actually got Lego sets, but I'm making up for it by doing loads of Lego now. <laughs> Are you re- Did you watch the Lego series? No, I haven't actually, but I need to. Oh, you'll be in tears. But when we moved to Liverpool, I got my boyfriend a Lego yellow submarine. And then for Christmas last year, he got me the um, Lego uh, Women of NASA, which was really good, which I made the other day. That's so cool. Yeah. I I liked making jigsaws. I liked drawing and colouring in. I'm not particularly artistic, creative 
wise but I'm quite good at kind of remixing copying yeah (laughs) so what I used to do is like I used to copy cartoons and then color them in with felt tip pens and then use um, a paintbrush with water to kind of smooth out the lines of the felt tip pen and sort of paint them and I used to then give them to people for presents like frame them and stuff so everyone's got like a Simba as a (laughs) a lion cub uh, in a little frame that I drew for them yeah and they're still in people's hanging up I I doubt it (laughs) I think you maybe, used to sell maybe them. Maybe some, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, there'd probably have to be some copyright issues, yeah. but uh, yeah. Oh, that'd be mean if Disney sued a six-year-old. Mm. But then when I got a bit older, it would become like copying album covers. So I remember oh, one yeah. rainy Sunday, I drew um, K by Cooler Shaker. That Man, that's, really that's incredibly intense. Album. Isn't that like the Beatles' um, Sgt. Pepper's album? A bit like that, but it's also a bit, we had a book that was... Um, pictures where everything in the picture began with the same letter and that's yeah. what that album cover everything in the picture be- begins right. with the letter k so yeah like where's wally books i really loved as well like yeah. looking and finding wally and then finding all the other things in, yeah. in the books as well pattern recognition is that the you get a kick out of that i think so and that's probably why i ended up be- doing stats basically for a living <laughs> <laughs> would you like music then as well for that reason of like you know yeah, I so I was on a podcast recently about um, it's called the Symbol Podcast. It's Dave Collingwood who makes symbols, oh, symbols wow. as in the musical instrument symbol like rather than Siljan or something. Yeah, but so he makes symbols, Co- like Collingwood that. symbols. Yeah. yeah, wow. And um, so he started a podcast about symbols, and we I was talking about what I like about music and quite often the patterns of the drums. So I really like things like math rock and um, yeah. prog and oh, things totally. that have got amazing They break drum. and they've got four sevens or something. Yeah, and, and yeah. so you, there are lots of kind of counting and looking for the patterns. In my band, we wrote a song about a mathematician um, called Srinivasa Ramanujan. And um, we had the break bit in the song. Each pattern was a prime number. It got one, one prime number longer each time. That's <laughs> so awesome. No, no. <laughs> I'm sure people that start people start off that is that is inspiration, and then they might edit in something a little bit more listenable. <laughs> Not us. <laughs> Not us. <laughs> I love that. That's a great place to start. Yeah, but um, I, I like I really like things like that. I like listening and counting and working out the like where the where the time signatures change and that. I don't li- always listen to music like that. I do like to just like get absorbed in the music as well but I also really like to find the patterns and sort of hear where when drum beats change where the change happens and kind of thinking yeah. of and trying like there's a band called Tortoise who've got a song no. called Seneca that's got an amazing ending that's clapping and like working out the clapping patterns and that kind of I mean yeah yeah so th- that's really interesting there's also a really good um who did um Arcade Fire on th- I think the third album yeah they do a song which the, the last beat is missing and it just kicks straight to the next beat yeah. and it just gives you this kind of jolt. Yeah. Yeah. And you, have you heard of Eurorack synthesizers? I have, yes. <laughs> You'd love them because they literally, they've got the circadian rhythm generators, mm. polyrhythm generators yeah. and like all derivatives of, of those. Um, I've got a little set at home of these <laughs> and you literally, I mean, it doesn't sound particularly musical. Sounds like, um, a bit like Tom York's more recent mm. stuff actually, to be fair. But, um, yeah, oh, that's interesting. So you, you, there's definitely a link for you between all of these things. You you, you recognise that in your work. Oh, and in your... yeah, I'm probably the only person who's been in Rolling Stone magazine about my science and New Scientist magazine about my music. That's so cool. <laughs> I love that. It's pretty good, isn't it? So have you moved your, your play part of your life and your... If I may talk about it like this, the thing that pays you. Yeah. Have you merged those two? Do they cross over quite a lot now? Yes, I would say yes. So 
I don't do as much music as I used to do, but my kind of play thing now, I suppose, is like the science communication and public engagement work that I do, which is technically part of my job. And in fact, it's kind of even more part of my job now because I just got some funding uh, from the Wellcome Trust oh, to, to be a public engagement fellow for the next two years. Wonderful. So they've actually bought out my teaching at Liverpool. So half of my time at Liverpool, they're now paying for for the next two years for me to do this public engagement stuff. So I've kind of, yeah, I, that's kind of what I'm doing. But everything I've done to this point, I haven't done to make money. So I started writing a science blog just because I wanted to. And I, it was when I started doing my PhD and I thought, at the end of this PhD, I'm going to have to write a thesis. So yeah. I really want to get better at writing. Yeah. And then it, it won an award really quickly and then got picked up by The Guardian. So suddenly my little practice blog to learn how to write, within six months I was writing for The Guardian. Better gu- be good. <laughs> <laughs> I got proper writer's block. It was incredibly like stressful to think, oh my God, my blog was just being read by my mum and like a couple yeah. of random people. Yeah. And now suddenly I've got thousands of followers on Twitter and I'm writing for a national newspaper. I mean, just the website, but even so... How did this happen? <laughs> so did you then feel the duty was under more scrutiny to deliver? Yeah, well, yeah, I felt a lot of pressure. I felt, because particularly when you're in the first year of your PhD, you don't necessarily have that much confidence in your interpretation of things. So I was writing posts about research papers or about how the media were representing things like plain packaging of cigarettes or mm. the cannabis research, um, anything really around recreational drugs and around mental health. Yeah. And when I was writing for my blog, it was it was fine because I could sort of try stuff out. And then suddenly I was writing somewhere where lawyers had to read over things that I was writing and that kind of thing. And it was like, oh, dear, <laughs> how did this happen? <laughs> and it was great. And like, I, it was an amazing opportunity. And so much stuff has come from yeah. that point that it was amazing and totally I'm really, really lucky and glad that it all happened and was yeah. in the right place at the right time and, you know, all of this. But kind of then the, exactly the same thing happened with the podcast is that I had this idea to do the podcast years ago and it was about a podcast about drugs that didn't have any of the hyperbole or spin or judgment that drugs education often has. Yeah. It just told you what we know, what we don't know and, like, bust in some of the myths that exist around the drugs. yeah. yeah. And again, this was around the same time I had the idea and got, I won this competition called I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here, which got me a bit of money. So I bought a microphone and in fact, that's where I had the idea to do it was in that you had to pitch to these children who were voting um, what you'd do if you won. And this is what I pitched. And then I really hit a bit of a brick wall because I thought I didn't really know what I was doing. I interviewed a couple of researchers about their work around drugs and they were great. I was not great. I didn't know how to record properly and I didn't know how to interview properly. So they're really dry and they kind of sound like they're sitting at the other side of the room from the microphones. <laughs> and it's just all a bit of a... Almost like you're listening in. Yeah, but not in a, not in a good way. And I can't hear what you're saying. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, that kind of sat on the back burner and then I was introduced to Scroobius Pip and invited on his podcast by via a random luck root on Twitter basically and um, him getting involved just immediately made it actually happen because he had three really good ideas he had the name he had the idea that um, I should do it with me as the expert talking to an interested non-expert that he offered to be and he said he was starting a podcast network and I could put it out on that so it's like oh well god I have to do it now then because this is too good an opportunity to pass up Um, so we met and recorded some and I thought okay this is good and like obviously having a big name involved means it's going to 
get picked up a bit more. What I was not expecting was it to go into the top 10 of the iTunes chart with the first episode. <laughs> and I was like, oh God, I've done it again. A thing that's just got out of hand really fast. So how do you feel about it now? I'm so proud of it. It's probably the best thing I've ever done. It's nice because it's honest as well as it's informative, but also it's very clear where I don't know some things. I don't mind saying that now. And I've, that's the thing I think I've really grown in confidence with being, when you're starting out, you feel like, oh God, I should know this. I should know this. Yeah. And then you realize that professors all the time go, oh, I don't know. I don't know that. And you're like, actually not saying you don't know is a really powerful, confident thing to do. Completely. And it's way better than bullshitting and pretending really because is. that's really dangerous. It gives people also permission to feel that yeah. experience when they respect you. Yeah. Otherwise, you, yeah, yeah, you end up giving them a different feeling if you answer everything like bing, 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 bing. They're yeah. like, oh. It's intimidating and also it can be really misleading. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's so, like, knowing how to do that is really better. Practicing, like, this kind of just talking into a microphone, that's an incredibly good skill to have as well because I do get asked to do sort of radio things and that yeah. kind of thing as well about research and that sort of thing be the expert opinion when papers by other people are published yeah and so it's really useful to be able to know like it sounds stupid but be able to speak on command but also kind of learning that little <laughs> politician style answering not the question you've been asked but the thing that you think is important to get across mm. and being like knowing how to do that because ultimately the yeah. people listening don't necessarily even want to know the answer to the question you've been asked. They want to know the interesting thing about the research that you're talking about. Quite right, yeah. So if you're able to go, oh, that's interesting. I think what's really important is blah, yeah. blah, blah, and yeah. just kind of move it round or, yes, and that reminds me this. Yeah, absolutely. That can be an incredibly uh, useful skill to have when you've only got like 20 seconds on a radio show to get your point across. Absolutely, to draw attention to the thing that needs that's the, the support important and the thing. interest. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if you'll answer it like that to this next question. <laughs> Damn, I've given away my secret. <laughs> How do you keep your mental health in check? No, I'm going to be honest here. It's really difficult. Not necessarily because of work. And actually, I've I've never really had problems with my mental health until quite recently. I I had a miscarriage earlier this year and started getting anxiety symptoms after that. And I've just started um, online CBT to kind of help with that. And I don't. I think that's quite a common reaction to having a miscarriage. I think it's that, that anxiety of sort of feeling like you don't have control over your body or the things that are happening in the world. Um, it's not uncommon. But to be honest, up until that point, I've always been a kind of like resilient and relentlessly positive kind of person. Yeah, you seem like that. And so it's, that's, it's been actually quite... Diff I mean, I'm sure it's difficult for everyone, but it's been really difficult to deal with because it's... It feels like a change. Yeah. And to be honest, towards the end of my PhD as well, I did struggle quite a lot. I had, um, yeah, some personal things happening. A couple of really close friends died within quite quick succession mm. within the year when I was also trying to write up and I had a big breakup. So, and I turned 30. It was like, and I ran a marathon. Oh my God. <laughs> that is... So that was a year that happened in my life. At least it all happened in one year. Well, in a way, yeah, you're probably right. Um, and uh, like everything happened kind of well in the end, um, sort of. I mean, obviously people dying is not things happening well, but... That's an important point. You're the decider of that. If you think things are well... Yeah. Then that's kind of... That's true. Yeah. Right? But the thing, I think, having amazing support around me throughout that year and also what's happened this year has made all the difference. Um, 
because I like it's difficult enough when you're struggling, let alone if you are struggling with, without people who understand. And so I just feel like I'm incredibly lucky to have like my parents, as I've said, who are incredibly supportive, my family, my sister, my partner now, um, yeah. he's been amazing this year. And obviously he's going through it as well because it's yeah. like it physically happened to me, but it happened to both of us. And yeah, yeah. sort of, you don't realize how much you've reframed your life around having a baby and then it suddenly isn't going to happen anymore. It's an incredible adjustment. And also it's so common and no one talks about it. Yeah. Hardly anyone knew I was pregnant, but so many people now know that I've had a miscarriage because I think it's really important to talk about it. Yeah. Because the amount of people that I've spoken to have then said, "Oh yes, we've been through that as well. Like we've yeah. went through it. We've had two, we've had three, you know, it's yeah. it's not uncommon and yet it's something that's just sort of you're told not to tell people you're pregnant in case it happens, but actually people knowing so they can support you is what you need. It's exactly what you yeah. need. It's not like, "Oh, if we never mentioned it, it didn't have any impact yeah. it's like absolutely and it has been incredibly comforting to like to know that other people have been through it as well that I'm not like I know I'm not saying it's good that other people have been through it but I mean it is comforting to know that people have been through it and now like their journey was horrible but they've got to the point where they wanted to be and they're all they've got families and yeah. they kind of you go through this and you think it's hard to look beyond it but like there is there is a beyond it yeah yeah and talking do you think um, when you interview, that gives you, um, you know, that kind of state of flow, a lot of unthinking? Do you know what I mean? I know you're thinking very carefully, <laughs> curating your podcast. I'm just, you're not, you know, banging out a slice every day. But um, do you, you, you obviously go into a state of complete connection with the person and you're thinking about it and you're not, you know, thinking about your day. Yeah. Does that help your mental health, do you think, um, the, the talking through the podcast and also your, your engagement and what you're looking forward to with the Wellcome Trust? Mm. Do you think that communication piece, you being responsible for that? It's definitely good to um, have kind of good things going on as well. But in terms of that, I don't record podcasts that often for it to be a kind of every day I get to get out of my head and do that kind of thing. But I find things that do serve that purpose. It's not the podcast, but... Um, like playing the piano, oh, I find incredibly totally. like mindfulness in a way. I mean, yeah, I've tried mindfulness and it doesn't really work for me in the way in the sort of body scanning, which is supposed to relax you, just makes me incredibly tense. <laughs> but well, hey, what's body scanning? So it's where you think, like, you think about the tips of your toes, oh, and yeah. then you think about your the ankles, on the and then you think, yeah. Yeah, 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 and it just makes my whole body. Tense. I just go, oh my god, I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> I think I think it's because when I was a kid, I had insomnia quite a lot, or I was oh. not very good at sleeping, and. Um, People always used to say, oh, that's a good way to help you fall asleep. But it didn't no, work for gave me. You night terrors. <laughs> it gave me wide awakeness. Yeah. Um, but I find if I get home from work and I've had a stressful day at work, if I sit down at the piano, I notice the exact moment when I let it all go. It's when I stop yeah. making mistakes. It's yeah. when I'm in the piece and I'm playing. And I, So I've studied piano when I was a kid and I still play my grade eight pieces because they're really oh. beautiful. So I sit at the piano and I start playing and I'm like, meh, meh, mistakes. And then suddenly I'm, no, I'm not thinking about it anymore. Yeah. And then it's like, I'm, it's the flow that you get. Yeah. And I find that really good. I really like, in the last few months, I've started doing yoga, which I've never done before. Uh. I've done Pilates before, which is, to be honest, very similar. Yeah. But um, I like that as a, a sort of hour of just kind of 
thinking about something else and I go um I go swimming in the docks in Liverpool huh? I'm allowed <laughs> I'm not I don't just jump in with all the boats what? no there's um there's a like wild swimming or open water swimming um club that meet twice a week in that's the, amazing so I go down <laughs> there is you just slipping in between a barge yeah. no I mean Gosh. you know it's good there are jellyfish sometimes which really? is the first time I jumped Stinging in ones? no no okay. no just little tiny ones the first oh, time I, the first time I jumped in I thought I like immediately went underwater and the first thing I saw was a jellyfish. I was like, Aah! and there were all the other people in there who'd obviously been doing it for years, just looked at me like I was weird. And yeah. I was like, okay, I need, I need to just get on with this. Not make <laughs> so I don't want to sh- show myself up to my hopefully new friends. Uh, and now I've just got really used to it. Although that first time I did worry that I'd swallowed one, but I thought maybe that means I'll get some superpowers. Yeah, yeah. I'll Im- have some of his powers yeah. now. His. Do jellyfish have superpowers? <laughs> Apart from the piano, how do you kind of... Um, Look after your mental health. What other remedies and things do you do you engage in? Um, I think yeah, the yoga and the swimming and the part of it, and running and cycling, being outside a lot. It can be really hard when you're in the middle of feeling really bad to actually motivate yourself to do those things. But one of the things that I've been trying is just not beating myself up about it. Like if I don't want to go out. If yeah. I do want to cancel yeah. plans, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sort of letting myself and n- not feeling bad about it, but equally kind of saying, well, why don't you try it for a bit? And generally, if I do go out, I have a nice you time. completely love it. Yeah. And when it was particularly bad was just when it was Cheltenham Science Festival, which I was going to for a few days. And I was sitting in my living room thinking, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And I just made myself go and get on the train. And a friend of mine lives really close to Cheltenham train station. So I thought, go to Cheltenham, go to her house for a cup of tea and then go to the festival. And that's what I did. And it was just that little bit of kind of sort of comforting of like just having a friendly face. And I ended up having an absolutely brilliant time and I felt so much better by the time I got home. And like, if I hadn't gone, I would have really regretted it. Um, They would, I'm sure they would have understood, but I would have, I don't like uh, letting people down for a start. I think that's something quite sort of strong within me that I like I don't want to be a flaky person I don't want to be someone that lets people down I want to I like it when I leave people happier than when I found them if you know what I mean so yeah it's really when you're when you're struggling it's incredibly hard to be the person that you want to be sometimes completely so not beating yourself up about that but also kind of trying and knowing that when you surround yourself by great people it helps yeah even though you might think you just want to be by yourself yeah, no, I completely agree. I think also if you quit, you know, um, so obviously alcohol gives you that state of flow. Oh, I've as quit well. alcohol two months ago as well. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Partly because every time I drunk, the next day I just felt horrendous, yeah. just much worse. And I think that's not uncommon as well. I mean, obviously hangovers are bad physically, but I definitely think that as I've got older, I've got more emotional hangovers. I just find it really hard to feel joy the day after drinking. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought, well, I don't need to drink. So. What was it doing for you? I think I don't think it was really doing anything. I think partly the reason was after, like, if you've found out you're pregnant, you obviously stop drinking or certainly stop drinking mostly. And because I do a lot of research about alcohol, I stopped drinking completely. Yeah. So, and then when I had the miscarriage, I was like, yeah, I can get drunk. And then I thought, oh. So I was drinking basically every day. And then I sort of thought about why I was doing that. And I didn't have a good reason why. It wasn't making me feel any better when I was drinking. And it definitely wasn't making me feel any better the next day. So I just thought, let's stop for like a month. Yeah. And just kind of see if that helps with the anxiety symptoms. Yeah. And obviously it did, because of course it will. Yeah. Um, 
And then I just thought, well, these days you can get so many really, really nice non-alcoholic beers. Totally, yeah. Um, so you don't have to not go to the pub. Like I live close to a few really nice pubs that I really like going to that all do really nice non-alcoholic That's beers. Great. Like not just the typical, but they have really good ones. Um and I think that's becoming more common. So you don't have to miss out on anything. You don't yeah. have to feel like, oh, I'm boring. I don't drink, so I'm I'm staying in. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm like I don't want to be all evangelical about it because I probably will drink again. I don't think I'm going to quit forever. But for now, it's really nice. It's yeah, it's suiting you as well. Yeah. I really think I can see um, the way that people, the amount of cigarette smokers versus uh, vape smokers versus non-smokers. I reckon that kind of ratio will happen with alcohol. Mm. I can easily see a pub full of like a minority amount of drinking alcohol. And if you speak to anyone, as you probably do, um, who are in the, for, um, the, uh, the police or ambulance mm. service or anything like that, it's like 50% of their cases. In fact, actually one of my friends has just become a paramedic. Oh, wow. And she's like, um, she was in the call centre, mm-hmm. you know, with the um, emergency response, I should say. And she's like, Ben... Basically, all the violent stuff of an evening at the weekend is drunk, really, drunk people. And it's like, how did we ever get to this kind of state? Or had it not changed sooner than this? But it feels like this is a... Mm. Do you feel like this is a turning point in public? It's definitely... So young people, like the evidence suggests that young people are drinking less. Although having said that, they are still, when they do go drinking, that the research or the, the kind of surveys suggest that they are still kind of binging, binging, yeah. just doing it less frequently. Okay. Whereas the <laughs> kind of generation above me, they are drinking more than ever. And that's potentially hey, what ge- worrying. So what generation is that? So like sort of 50, 60 and above yeah. are drinking more than they ever used to. Oh gosh. Um, what is that to remedy, do you think? Well, I think that's a really interesting question and I, I don't know the answer and I think that would be really interesting to look at. Yeah. Um, and also why young people are drinking less. I think there's lots, there's actually lots of research going into that at the moment and yeah. I think it's, it's very easy to go, oh, it's the fault of smartphones and the internet because young people are just going out less and therefore they're drinking less. But I think that's very oversimplistic. And I think there's all sorts of reasons why it could be. Um, And maybe that kind of social media has a part, a role in that. But I don't think it's a particularly big one or certainly not the only one. No. But I think what I should also say at this point is I really, really love pubs. Yeah. I love pubs. I love going to pubs. I love spending the evening in pubs. I definitely don't want the kind of that cultural aspect of our society to be lost. Like, I think it would be really sad if that happened. And I know that there's a lot of people who are really worried about this decline in alcohol use because of the risk to that kind of cultural aspect of pubs. But that's why I'm really, really pleased to see pubs embracing kind of non-alcoholic beers and that kind of thing. Because I don't think alcohol use should disappear, or certainly I don't think pubs should disappear, but it would be really great if they can kind of evolve, evolve. Yeah, into... Like a, sorry, no, go on. Yeah, just into something. Something else. And also like a youth centre. I feel like a youth centre being part of that as well. If, if you remove alcohol from pubs in a way, there's also You open room. them up to... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think particularly given like we've just been through however many years of austerity and provision for things like youth centres and yeah. for... Oh, well, I mean, support for people with substance use problems is really plummeted. But I think for young people, there's so little to do kind of out and about that maybe that is why young people are staying in more if they are indeed staying in more um and socializing online rather than in person because the opportunities to socialize in person have 
declined. It's not because smartphones have appeared. It's because these places have been shut down. Yeah. I also have to say, though, like, I think it's a richer, a richer engagement on online. So if I think of, like, Twitch, right? So they didn't have Twitch when I was... I'm just turned 40, right? But literally, I had a computer from the age of, like, 12, obsessed with them throughout my life. And if I think about, like, online gaming and stuff like that, I was probably an early adopter of that. And I got to be friends with... <laughs> Do you know Counter-Strike, the first-person mm-hmm. shooter? It became a problem in my life, so <laughs> I had to kick it out at a certain point. But I was friends with these guys who are all panel beaters up in Nottingham somewhere, and I was just some, you know, kid who worked at a bank down south, and I was in their little gang. But we all got on really, really well, had a really good laugh, you know, all over the phone, mm-hmm. you know, ever, you know, talking and what have you. But we all had this one common interest, which was this little game that we played. And... If you step out, if I stepped out, I'm from Brentwood, Essex, if I just stepped outside, there weren't many people who were kind of interested into what I was in. I'd had to go to like a, a youth club in Chelmsford or go to gigs. In fact, I went to a gig which was first met Scroobius Pip um, and he was doing spoken word poetry and they're in between two bands. Yeah. So they literally stopped everything and he did his thing about, right, there's nothing accompanying this, I'm just going to talk to you. And I was like, wow, like that's my type of person. You know, you yeah. find these little people, yeah. but it would be very difficult to get them in one place. And it's like, if you just go, you subscribe to a Twitch channel to watch someone play a game or to watch something, you're going to find everyone around there. And that's got to be more attractive than doing it in your hometown, right? I could not agree more. Yeah, um, I think this whole, the internet has ruined conversation is such a misnomer because yeah. it's people who don't understand like, or... The internet is so, so many different things yes. to, e- to each individual, let alone different things to different people. Yeah. And if you are someone, like, I was a bit like that as well. I grew up in a little village and I was quite a sort of alternative person. Um, I, like, I wanted to go and watch gigs or listen to music that not everyone else was listening to and that kind of thing. And there were a few, like, some friends who I'm still friends with now, like, really, yeah. really good friends who we kind of connected over the same things or what have you. But it definitely was the case where if I'd been able to be, have like online communities where I could find people more like me, yeah. I would have jumped at the chance. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really kind of downplayed about the importance of online. Yeah. Um, being like being able to communicate with people all over the world, like whatever, ni- however niche your interest is, yeah. there's going to be other people online who share it. Yes, yeah, right, and obviously podcasts are a massive part of that, but also meetups is the is the boomerang coming back as well. They happen a lot, yeah. Right? But it's just you won't know about that. It's because it's not widely reported, right? You know, like oh, there was a really cool meetup that happened between yeah, yeah. fans of pod- whatever it is, game or, or or even like a series. I think we, we hit the most we hear about it is like a comic con. Yeah. One of those big events where everyone's dressed up for that, or they will report on that. But yeah. the other stuff's probably not that yeah. interesting. Like, I cycle home through a park every day, and it's so often I see groups of people playing Pokemon Go. Oh, it's so cute. It's so brilliant. <laughs> and also, you look at them and you just know that they. They didn't meet in the real world. They met online and became friends. And I just love it. It's yeah. so brilliant. Yeah. That's a really enriching thing when you see that. Sorry, just go back to some of our questions here. So do you think conflict has helped your life? I don't like conflict. I don't like arguing with people. I mean, I don't know why I'm on Twitter. But (laughs) I don't like arguing with people. I don't like um, hearing other people argue. And that's one thing, I guess, about social media that I do find difficult is watching people that I really like and respect tearing chunks out of each other. I would much rather find a way to find kind of 
a common ground than sort of have a really strong disagreement with anything. Yeah. And I really hate it when, in terms of research, I feel like someone thinks I'm criticising their work because I disagree with their findings. Like, I've, I really hate that. I'd much rather... Look, look, we look all the, got along. Yeah, but look for the commonality. Yeah. It does kind of just send people in the opposite direction sometimes. It's so, Well, they're not really listening, are they? They're just... They're both in monologue. Yeah, that's it. So, and I think I do work in a field where there is a lot of kind of trolling or like yeah. particularly when I was writing about really? plain packaging of cigarettes so around cigarettes around cannabis and around e-cigarettes there is really polarized opinion on things and so there is quite a lot of there's a lot of debate which is fine but there's also a lot of kind of disingenuous debates or people kind of just with an agenda yeah people who are not are not debating in good faith. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Who who are just trying to cause shout you down. Basically. Contrarianism or yeah. all that kind of stuff. I mean, even more extreme than that of like people who just want you to stop talking. Yeah, shut up, please. Um, and I found that certainly when I first started writing and I was writing about plain packaging of cigarettes, there were times. I, this literally happened that someone who works for a tobacco industry company no, um, no. was at a debate a public debate that we were at and came over to our group and said which one of you is Susie Gage no. like this was well even that question would hit me up well that, I mean that, and that's the point of it right it's, quite it's to kind of just go just so you know we know who you are like nothing they didn't do anything else other than that but as a sort of psychological yeah, yeah a very nice. early career person it is designed to intimidate yeah, yeah. and that then I got home from that thing and found that a uh libertarian blogger had written a kind of attack piece allegedly about my post but really it was about me like I'd put a load of arguments in the post and rather than go through my arguments yeah. they just went oh look on her twitter bio she says she likes knitting so, oh, she, so she must be an idiot and then yeah. kept referring to me as kiddo and I was like I'm 32 but thanks you know? <laughs> yeah exactly I'll take it yeah oh, um yeah and so that made me sort of wary but it also made me realize I've touched a nerve here. Yeah. They want me to stop talking, but they can't stop me from talking. So yeah. I'm going to carry on. Yeah. And I'm going to make sure that everything I say is kind of n never go low like that. Never go for a person, but go high, go for evidence and kind yeah. of people can disagree. Like that's absolutely fine. I think it's good that people challenge evidence. I think it's really important that people don't just accept everything that scientists say as gospel, because as we said at the beginning, that like scientists aren't, aren't infallible either. Yeah. But I don't want to get into the debate. I'm going to present my evidence and you can then do with that what you want. Like yeah. you can interpret that however you want. I'm not, I'm trying not to. I mean, obviously, I'm still a person. I still have my own beliefs and I can't help but bring those. But I try my best to be aware of them and to kind of be as dispassionate as I can, but also really highlighting that, obviously, this is my take on the evidence. Yeah, yeah. Which is really difficult to do. <laughs> and that's also what I've tried to do with the podcast all the way is, like, not come down on a side, not say, this is good, this is bad. I mean, it'd be very hard to say, like, drugs are good. But, you know, what I mean, like... This is, these are the risks. These are some of the reasons why people do it because of the pleasurable experiences. Um, these are some of the ways that medical community are looking at the substances. 
Yeah. This is the evidence. This is like, we don't know this. We don't know that. We do know or we think this, this, this. And not knowing doesn't mean it's not true. It just means we don't have the evidence. Kind of really lay it out as plainly and simply and dispassionately as I can. Yeah. And try and then let people make, like, use that how they want to. For their own risk assessment. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask? I slightly deflected your question about No, no, no. no. (laughs) It made me think about the world of tobacco as well. And if this is too direct, then I understand. But has anything ever good come out of tobacco as an industry? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, but I, I mean, I don't know everything about the tobacco industry. Sure, so... maybe there's been a discovery off the back of it, which we don't yeah, you know, know about. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess we've, we can, we've understand the psychology of behaviour change a bit better. We understand how epidemiology works a bit better because when they first discovered the link between smoking and lung cancer the working hypothesis from the researchers at the time was that it was tarmac on the roads that was causing the the rise in lung cancer and the researchers who were doing it were smokers themselves and they looked at the evidence and went oh it's smoking and immediately it's, st- <laughs> it's immediately stopped smoking um or I don't know whether immediately stopped smoking on also this is probably a bit one of those slightly apocryphal tales of that's probably the broad brush strokes of the truth, but actually it's probably not quite as, it's probably more nuanced than, than yeah. that because it's sort of a too good to be true story, yeah. which do then tend to be too good to be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite often. But that, the, the sort of principle of, um, yeah, how to, so coming up with like a criteria when we see these associations between smoking and lung cancer, there's this kind of criteria that were developed um, to get at causality. Yeah. So, does one thing happen before the other thing? Is there a biologically plausible route that it could be happening? That kind of thing. So where you can't do the randomised controlled trial experiment that you'd want to do, you can then apply these criteria to get a better idea of is X causing Y, is smoking causing lung cancer? Yeah. I mean, something about the, that I think is really interesting is how similar it is with kind of climate change. So I work, I've got, I've got a very good friend who's a climate scientist and when we first became friends was around this time when I was writing these blogs and whatnot and she was talking about speaking to climate sceptics and I was talking about speaking to kind of libertarian bloggers and we were both like, this is really similar, like the arguments are really similar and then there's this amazing um, film called Merchants of Doubt that actually, um, it turns out there are some big players who've been involved in both of like spreading this kind of spreading the seeds of doubt that smoking is really as harmful as everyone <laughs> says is it? and spread, yeah but kind of God. all you need is one or two scientists saying something different to be able to go well, actually the scientific community oh, don't man. agree i've seen enough law courtroom dramas to know that mm. you know you could go to many different experts yeah and then you get that terrible what gove who said like, we've had enough of the experts that was gove Christ almighty. But sorry, sorry, I really brought down her on the vibe. But I look at something like that and I, I think about like human beings, like the human scale of how people evaluate things and their association and, their, and how they modulate each other. And I just imagine this guy, just as you were saying this, on a train with a big pipe full of tobacco <laughs> and loads of cows on the back taking big old coal-fired train and thinking this kind of stuff it's amazing you found out that coal could do all this kind of stuff and you found out oh monoculture there's loads of great things we can do if we just farm just this one thing and and we can then you know supply meats around the world and things and then someone's coming that's actually not good for anyone and you're like we've done it now you know it's like 
and my entire life and family, like you're now ripping out my identity. Like if I came from a family of tobacconists or, yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? It's, and it's that it always comes down to the human factor of how it makes them feel when you change things. Mm-hmm. And I just find that fascinating. And, I, and it, may, it makes me think, like, if I go to my dark place of humans will never, you know, who's the, um, the Japanese um, scientist who says there's a type zero, type one, type two civilization? Type zero is when we harness all the, you break down all the barriers and we harness all the power, natural power from the sun. And he's like, we may not see, like the Fermi paradox, we may not see people out there because maybe no society ever escapes. They always end up nuking themselves or something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> but, you know, do you, when you're in, front line with some of these people, their, their inability to grasp your arguments, it, do you think it then comes down to a psychological tethering to their identity and how bad this makes them feel if they do accept it? What do you think is the thing that's inhibiting them seeing things? I mean, that's the key question, isn't it? Because if we could understand that, like, from a psychological perspective, then you could start to challenge is the wrong word, but sort of help people. I've got a friend who's really, really become quite obsessed with conspiracy theories and why people have conspiracy theories. And it's kind of the same thing. It's like you can't logically argue someone out of a position they didn't get into through a logical thought process. Right. And in fact, you can do more harm than good because if you start sort of being condescending and kind of mocking someone for their incorrect belief as you see it, then actually that just... Trump gets elected. I mean, mean, yes, but... Yeah. But it's not surprising. Like if someone came up to me and told me I was stupid for have, for, for something that I really strongly felt was part of me, yeah. I would double down on it because of course you would. Totally. And um, so that doesn't work. What does work? Like how did they develop these things in the first place? And it comes from a questioning mentality quite often. Yes. It's just where like where do you get the questioning? Like who are you asking and where are you finding the information and these days you can find anything online which means it's really really difficult to navigate the kind of evidence-based stuff from the woo and that's why you end up with a huge resurgence in kind of flat earthers and that kind of thing because it's really easy to find on the on the surface I was going to say very (laughs) very convincing the flat surface surface, very convincing videos of 9-11 truthers you know all of this oh I have to say I'm being really honest so in my 20s I think I was one of the ones who went to my non-YouTube friends guys (laughs) if there was explosions in the wind can't melt steel beams (laughs) that to me yeah exactly (laughs) god it's so embarrassing (laughs) And I basically, I know what happened. I was getting off on having something over somebody else. I was like, I've got some insider knowledge. And it was like, I didn't question any of that kind of stuff. I didn't read up any of the references. And yeah, but, but you don't, you don't have to go far to see the silliness in it. Like with the moon landings, maybe the moon landings were faked, but if they were, that means 400,000 people were involved in that fake. And that's actually as impressive as going to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, might as well just go there. I also when poor old Buzz is it who's the guy Buzz Aldrin punched someone yeah which oh, is just amazing I'm like yeah in fact that's probably what I'd do if I'd been to the moon <laughs> why are you lying to us Buzz sod off yeah. yeah exactly I've had enough and how old is he what a 
reaction from the man. Yeah, Love him. he must be in his 80s now. Um, oh, man alive. Yeah, because obviously it was the 50th anniversary of the moon landings last weekend and I was at Blue Dot Festival where there was a lot of celebrations about it because it's like a science and music oh, festival. Really? I've never heard of that. Blue Dot. <gasps> it's a Jodrell Bank in Cheshire, the big yeah, radio telescope. Yeah, 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 So of they course. build stages under the telescope and um, it's... Oh. There's like bigger queues to get in to hear the science talks than there are to get in to um, watch like so hot chip craft work and new order headline this year. I was going to say it must be some electronic bands. It was really there. good. That's so um, cool. But I think the best thing I saw was Dallas Campbell interviewing James Burke, who had actually who did the BBC presenting on the de- like for the, the moon the landing, moon landing yeah. and talked about that, and it was really awe inspiring. Oh, yeah, that's so awesome. That's very cool. Anyway, sorry. You ended track. on a lovely note. We started something really horrible and pernicious. And <laughs> um, okay, one last thing. So for somebody who maybe hasn't found their groove in life, what would you say to kind of them is the, is the, the point to keep trying? So I've had lots of times where I thought my life was going to go in a different direction. The only reason I moved, I, moved, I was studied in London and then after I finished my master's, I moved to Bristol because I was in a band and the rest of the band lived there. What did you play? Uh, synthesizers. Oh, yeah. That's for the, the intro yeah. from Steve. Okay, <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, and I sang as well. But um, So I moved to Bristol to be in the band. And then it was only after being there for a few years that I found a job. I was applying for loads of jobs as a as a assistant psychologist. And eventually, so I was just temping, and eventually I found a job um, working as a as a research assistant in the psychology department in Bristol. Then I spent about five years applying to get PhD funding. And every time I got knocked back and I was at the point where I was thinking about retraining as a teacher. How many times did you apply? Five times. Yeah. Gosh. I think. Yeah. Maybe four, but lots. And obviously one each year. So time was kind of going on. And I was like, I had this good job working as a research assistant and I managed to keep that going. But I was just thinking academia, maybe it isn't for me. So I was literally about to, if I didn't get the PhD the next year, I was about to go do a PGCE, become a secondary school teacher. Then I got two PhDs, (laughs) (laughs) two PhD offers, because obviously that's what happens. And I very nearly moved to Switzerland to do a completely different PhD. Geneva or Zurich? Uh, to Lausanne. Oh, yeah. On Lake Geneva. Which That's beautiful. would have been beautiful. I, basically, I would have had to have learnt French. I would have had to have started lecturing in French by my fourth year of the PhD. And then just the opportunity arose to do a much better for me PhD in Bristol. And yeah. it was a really tough decision, actually. And I, and like, But I know now that I made the right choice of staying and starting to do this work, looking at the link between recreational drug use and mental health. Because if I'd have done the... Uh, Lausanne one I would it, the PhD was about how colour affects emotion so completely different topic whoa yeah does um, it? maybe <laughs> <laughs> I mean I didn't do it so I don't know <laughs> there's a lot of evidence to suggest that like if you're a sports team wearing red might be better than wearing blue in terms of um, like aggression and that yeah. kind of thing I mean or if you're certainly on, in a sport like is it taekwondo where you are there's a judge marking your moves that gen- all other things being equal reds do slightly better than blues which is why you it's randomly assigned what color you'll wear that's interesting mm. i mean there's also then been recently been quite a lot of psychological studies like this that have been disproved so it wouldn't surprise me if these findings don't stand up to scrutiny but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's really interesting it would have been a really interesting phd but oh. my life would have been very different if i'd have gone down that route so it's better because of the tributaries that have then off, you know, shot off from that. Yeah. 
But I guess what I'm saying is I never had a plan. I mean, you can probably tell from what I've just described. But <laughs> like, I just kept saying yes to things that I found interesting. And then like, you think, oh, I'm really lucky. And I, I know I've like, I've had loads of luck in my life. Definitely. I loads of like, I'm so privileged. I've had such, such luck and such opportunities. But I've also worked really hard to put myself in the place where those opportunities were. Yeah. Like, it was really lucky that Scroobius Pip happened to be coming down to the Southwest and someone tweeted him to say, why don't you invite Susie on your podcast? But that wouldn't have happened if yeah. I hadn't done all of these other things yeah. to be in that position where someone thought of me when he put that tweet out. Yeah. And then the podcast wouldn't have happened. And I'm, I'm really lucky that um, I've met a load of amazing people on Twitter and then got invited to go to conferences at Google and that kind of thing. But that yeah. wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been in that place. Yes. So there is luck, but there's also hard work as well. At any point, you could be dropped out of that process of successive, you know, yeah. engagement. If you don't deliver, if you squander it, if you're not nice. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And so I've had loads of times in my life where I've thought, oh, this isn't working. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? And I've just thought, well, I could stop and try something else. But actually, it's fine. Like, I liked my job in Bristol. I like living in Bristol. I Like, working as a research assistant was really good. It worked in my life at the time. So I was like, if I, I could go and retrain as a teacher. But actually, why don't I just carry on for one more year, try it one more year? And that was yeah. the year that it all paid off. So, yeah. And then it helped also that I had a really lovely PDR with someone who said it would be a massive loss if you gave up and went and become, became a teacher. And that really, that was a kind of, because I've been feeling like, um, am I just not cut out for this? Is that the reason I keep getting knocked back? And he very explicitly said, that's not the reason. Yeah. The reason is it's hard to get funding and yeah, yeah. don't give up. And so I didn't. And that's here really I am. Good. Yeah. <laughs> that's really good. That's great. We're, I think um, we're out of time, but that's been really interesting. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.